Good morning, dear radio friends. We greet you all in the name of the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us on Calvary. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. Therefore we praise him for Calvary, for the finished work on the cross. You can find my text this morning in the 11th chapter of Romans. In the first verse, where the word of God reads as follows, I say then hath God cast away his people, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. We have come to that great chapter in the course of our study on Israel's restoration. We first want to say a word of Israel's restoration in general, and then we want to look for some proof in the Old Testament for Israel's spiritual and territorial restoration. But before we enter into that, let us once more look up to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, humbly we come to thee this morning. We are so glad and grateful that we have thy wonderful word, and that thou hast opened our eyes, that we see at least some of the wonders of thy blessed word. We thank thee that thou hast poured into our hearts the love for Christ, the very love of God, and that love of God includes also love for thy word. We thank thee, our God, for everything that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, for in him we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places. And now speak to every heart solemnize us, teach us to listen well, to store thy truth away in our hearts, and then maybe not just forget it, but maybe talk about it, maybe meditate upon it, and maybe ask about the wonders of thy word, what it means to us personally, what it means to the world, what it means to Israel all the nations and the whole grown in creation. We pray thee for our beloved sick. Remember our dear fellow servant, Brother Peter Dykstra, still in the hospital. Bring him back to us soon, O God, in complete health and strength. Remember all that mourn, especially the Riker family who lay to dear wife and mother aside. O God, may the experience thy we come forward day by day, and we pray thee for all that are in trouble throughout the world. There are so many that cry behind the iron curtain. Thou alone knowest, O God, that thou hear their cry and be a very help to them in the time of trouble. We ask it in his wondrous name. Amen. By Israel's restoration, we mean then a double restoration, a spiritual 
And the territorial restoration, that means the restoration to the land of Israel. Now this truth lies somewhat on the periphery, and yet the Bible is filled with it. You need not believe in Israel's restoration in order to be a Christian. There are thousands, millions of believers that do know nothing about Israel's restoration. But you do need to know about Israel's restoration for the well-being of your Christian life. You cannot be a biblical Christian. You cannot be an intelligent Christian. You cannot be a Bible student. You cannot know God's plan concerning Israel and the nation and even the whole grown creation. You cannot understand the Bible, especially not the prophetic word. You cannot understand the future if you do not know the restoration of that miraculous people Israel. A people that was born in the treble miracle and perpetuated by a series of concatenation of miracles till this day and that shall be redeemed as Isaiah says in the first chapter by judgment. Zion shall be redeemed by judgment, not by Christian activity. God bless it all when it's real Christian activity. Not by Christian mission, not by Jewish mission. God bless them all. All that truly in love, the love of Christ, work for Israel's welfare. But Israel will never be restored by Christian mission or Hebrew mission. Israel will never be restored in this day of grace. In this gospel dispensation, the dispensation of the mystery and of the Holy Spirit, Israel will be redeemed and fully restored when it sees him whom they once rejected. Just as with Joseph. When they saw Joseph, yes, when they loved him, they realized that it was hate that had kept their lives in the day of famine. The rejected one had kept him. And so it is with the Messiah of Israel. They have rejected him. They have chosen a cutthroat above him. They have chosen the Roman Caesar above him. They have cried his blood be upon us and our children. And yet the very same one rejected has kept them all these centuries. So that neither the Pope, nor the kings, nor the emperors could destroy them. It was that rejected Messiah that kept them. Now, in the course of our study, we have come to this wonderful chapter, and we will not hasten at all to get through. And that's why I've chosen a very brief text this morning, 
And if you ask, how will Israel be restored, then remember what I have just told you by judgment. And the day that Christ shall come again and shall bring a great tribulation upon this world. And right in the beginning of that great tribulation, he will save 12,000 from every 12 tribes of Israel. At least there will be 144,000 that have a miraculous seal upon their forehead, evidently. Just as when God gave a mark to Cain, nobody could kill him. Though he was a fratricide. So those hundred forty-four thousand, protected miraculously by God, will go throughout all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And as a result of that preaching, there will be an innumerable multitude a multitude that no man could number, we read. So, right in the beginning of the Great Tribulation, there will be a worldwide revival. And that is not even the complete restoration of error. Now, my godly mother used to tell us children, children, when the Lord Jesus comes, Israel will be saved. I thought with my childish mind upon that, and I had absolutely no conception about it. I don't know where Mother ever got that. She certainly did not get it from her preachers. For they all said, God is true with Israel. But I surmise she was quite a reader that she got it from one of the books of the great Dutch poet Isaac de Costa. At least she was firm in her belief and told us time and again when the Lord Jesus comes, Israel will be saved. So I believe that when I matriculated a student in Grand Rapids. But when the professor threw his head in the neck and said, Gentlemen, Israel's restoration is no fact but a fiction. I lost it. I thought the professor knows it much better than my mother. And yet it never gave me rest, and I determined a student to find out for myself. When I came as a young pastor in my first church, I made it a special subject of prayer. I said, Lord, I do not understand the enigma of history, Israel. Give me to understand Israel. And if there is a future of Israel, a restoration of Israel, I shall boldly preach it regardless of consequence. And very soon after that, it came so sudden as a flash. And I saw even then, in my second year in my first church, that was in 1913, a year before the First World War, I was just as plain and clear on that subject as I am today. Now let us get some proof then. 
Well, we must have proof. That professor gave no proof. He just said, Gentlemen, Israel's restoration is no fact but a fiction. But that is really no proof. I accepted, as most students do, the prediction of the professor. But when I went to the old book that every Christian has, then I found out different. Now, what is the way to Bible study? What is the best and the greatest prerequisite to Bible study? Just regular horsing. That's all. With just a little prayer for work. You know what horse envy is? Horse envy is this, that a horse eats the hay and leaves the thorns and thistles. Now, there are no thorns and thistles in the Bible, but many knotty problems that we cannot fully understand. But eat the hay. Get all things that are plain to you, and then go on, and on and on. And everyone can do it, of course, if you have no common horse sense, God pity you. But most people, thank God, have that. And all that you have to do is apply some good common horse in. Sanctified by the Spirit of God, and then apply yourself prayerfully a little bit. The trouble today is, it's so different from some years back. When the tabernacle was built fully 30 years ago, then the people coming out of the tabernacle would always talk about the truth. But today they talk about the latest car model and the latest car trip and the latest television. That's what they're talking about today. Yes, I mean you. Shame on you. You do this what the Lord Jesus warned again. Take away the seed of the word that has been sown. Instead of going to the old book this noon and think about it and talk about it, you'll have your brain full of the things of the world. Now, you can never make any headway that way. We should be dead serious about everything that God has revealed in his wonderful book. But now after this, Little introduction, which was some catsup on the food. We'll go to the book for proof. And if he asks for proof, then we should begin with Moses. For every Hebrew, and I hope that many are listening in, for I'm sorry to say in passing that even many Hebrews, most Hebrews do not know their own glorious future. And rabbis don't preach it to them. They're more concerned about learning and a good standing with the going than with Moses and the prophets. But Moses is a witness that is acknowledged by all Israelites, whether they be modernistic or orthodox, whether they be Sephardim, or Askinadim, or Karyite, 
Oh, Jewish things the world the most. And no wonder he was a wonderful man. Who spoke pay or pay, we read in Hebrew. That is mouth upon mouth, literally, with God. Now, then, he's a wonderful witness. Let us see now that. We find that Moses, before Israel ever came in the Holy Land, when his last farewell, he told him of the terrible things that would come upon them if they were disobedient to God. He told him that a people from the end of the earth, swift as the eagle, a nation whose tongue they couldn't understand, the Roman people evidently, the Jews didn't understand the word of the Roman language, the Latin. Nation of fierce countenance because they never shaved. Or they always shaved, and the Jews never shaved. And he says, they shall besiege thee in all thy gates. I'm reading from Deuteronomy 52nd verse. He shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, fulfilled in Samaria, destruction, and in the first and second destruction of Jerusalem. And so he goes on. He says in 59, Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance, and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. But is that the end now? No, he says in the 30th chapter, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee. Listen. Then he says in the third verse, Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee. And... I will return. There's the return of the Lord. Remember, this was dead when they not even had entered the Holy Land. He says, I will return and gather thee from all the nations. Whether the Lord thy God hath scattered thee, and if any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. And thou shalt possess it. There's your territorial restoration. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy, uh, thy fathers. The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart. Now, oh, that's conversion. And the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies. There he will punish antisemitism. And he says in verse 8, And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments which I command unto thee. 
Now that's very plain of Moses. Now let us look in the book of Psalms. We will not hurry. You just listen attentively and try to follow me. As I read from the word of God, I am not coming with my own notion. You must never take the words that I say, but be Bereans and go home. Not to forget, but to see if these things are so. Now, take one of the many psalms. I could just as well take a hundred psalms and prove practically the same thing. But I'll take one psalm. Now let us see what the psalmist has to say in Psalm 69. That is a messianic psalm that is a psalm that treats of the Messiah and treats mainly of his suffering. Eight, nine facts are mentioned that have been literally fulfilled. He says, the Messiah says, I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Just as we read in Psalm 42 and 43, the floods of God's wrath have gone over that pit because he was made guilty. Let the world sin, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Then first all, they hate me without cause. That is in the New Testament applied to our Christ. I just briefly mention these facts, beloved, that you may know that eight, nine facts have been literally fulfilled in him, so that what then comes should be equally fulfilled as well. Then in verse 8 he says, I am a stranger unto my brethren, and where is brethren? An alien, he says, unto my mother's children. They were not his whole brethren. Now we know that was true, that was applied in the New Testament, because they didn't believe in him till they saw him as a crucified one. Then his brothers James and Judas and his sisters all believed in him, for don't believe for a moment that they were his cousins. They were the sons of Joseph and Mary. The whole fiction of Mary as a being a perpetual virgin has been taken out of the air and not out of the book of God. Then the ninth verse, for the seal of thine house hath eaten me up. And reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now that is also when he cleansed the temple. Then the disciples were reminded that it was said of him, The zeal of thine house hath eaten thee up. And then in the twentieth verse, Reproach hath broken my heart. Now I am full of heaviness. So Christ really had a broken heart. We read of that in other places also. He did not die of a broken heart, but he did have a broken heart. Then in verse 6, I looked for pity, he said, for some to take pity, but there was none. How true that was. The three disciples that were with him in the garden who should have pitied him and were sleeping. Peter too. And when he was led away, Peter followed from afar. And a little later, he denied him up and down. When he looked for pity, there was none to pity him. Then they gave me gall for my meat, and in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. How true that was of our Savior. Literally fulfilled, wasn't it? And then, 22, let their table become a snare that is in the New Testament. 
in fact, in this very chat, applied to those who have betrayed him and have rejected him. And then 25, let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. That especially is applied to Judah. Now listen what comes in the last two verses. Listen in the 34th and 35th verses. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. Why? Why must heaven and earth have such great rejoicing in all their inhabitants? Listen, for God will save Zion, and he will build the cities of Judah that say the Jews that rejected the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, shall dwell there and have it in possession. Now, how in the world could God ever Reveal the truth more plainly than that truth of Israel's restoration. In fact, there is not one single other truth that God has so proved in his word, not even the resurrection of Christ, has received the book of truth that the restoration of Israel has had. I do not say that the resurrection of Christ is not just a certain. I did not say that it is less certain. But it has not received the bulk of proof in Old and New Testament that the resurrection, that the restoration of Israel has received. I could point you to many other Psalms. I may do so at another time because next Sunday I intend to give you still more proof. I want to have this enter in so plainly, so deeply, so clearly, so indubitably, that you will tell your boys and girls about it. That's what I'm at. I know that you adults know it. But you as young fathers and mothers, you tell your boys and girls about the great and wonderful work that our God will do according to his word. Never mind what this church or what this classes or senate decide. That is absolutely no effect upon anyone that lives a life of faith. But we want to go to the prophets now. We have already two witnesses, and in the mouth of two witnesses every word is established. And they were star witnesses at that, Moses and David. But now we want to go to Isaiah and see what Isaiah has. Now let us take that text that he had in the synagogue of Nazareth, his introductory sermon, as it were. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, you know. He has come to those who are bad off, broken-hearted, blind, bound, ill, and for those classes he says. That was really fulfilled, wasn't it? But when he read that, you know that he stopped in the middle of the fifth, and he spoke of a year of grace, but the day of vengeance he did not mention. He had revealed through his spirit that word, and he knew what it meant 
and he had the right to apply it. And so he knew that when he came in his first coming, it was not the year of revenge then. But that year of revenge is coming, drawing fast the pace. When you hear about all the dismal accidents, all the chaos, and all the confusion, and all the fear, and all the diabolical wickedness, that is all the forthwiller of the fact that the day of revenge is drawing fast to face. That's what it means. But anyone that is hiding by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not need to be afraid, for there is no condemnation, no judgment, no day of revenge for those who are hiding by faith in him. The little children abide in him. Then he says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Here we have it, but not in the synagogue of Nazareth. In the Old Testament, it was found, and he knew that too, but he stopped in the middle of a sentence, as we never do in our reason. And then he says, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. He's talking about Zion, and that never means the church. Not any more than Jacob or Israel, or Ephraim. Zion is Zion, only it sometimes can stand for heavenly Zion. But here is the earthly Zion for all them to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Here are three beautiful contrasts. Israel is an ashes today. Behind the iron curtain, there are between five, six million. They are an ashes. Until this day, he'll give them beauty for ashes. Oil of joy for mourning. They're in mourning. He'll give them oil of joy. Just as the high priest had to the same wonderful, divinely made oil, ointment. A garment of praise for the Spirit of heaven. Israel still has among all the nations of the earth the Spirit of heaven. But he will give them the garment of praise. Now listen, that they might be called trees of righteousness. That planting of Jehovah. That he, Jehovah Jesus, might be glorified. And now listen, they shall build the old race. Now this is said for the church. What are the old races in the church? They shall raise up the form of desolation. I have seen in 27 those desolations of the Holy Land. They are real. They were till that day at least. They shall repair the waste cities. The waste cities are the cities that have been overthrown in judgment. The desolations of many generations. Then he goes on to speak of the glory of Israel. Strangers shall stand and feed your flock. The sons of aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dress. But ye shall be named the priests. Israel will be the priests of the whole earth. Today there isn't a single priest on the earth. There's just one priest and he's in heaven at the right hand of God. But in that day there will be a nation of priests. They will not be Gentiles, but Israelites. God has never recognized a Gentile prophet. 
He has never recognized a Gentile priest. But he has Jewish prophets and priests and kings. And Israel then will be the nation of priests for the whole world. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. They'll all be men. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory ye shall boast yourself. For your shame ye shall have double. For your confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. And know that word of the wondrous poetic beauty. Redeemed of the Lord shall return into Zion. And everlasting gladness shall be there. And joy shall be upon their head. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That has been repeated twice. Then in the next chapter, Isaiah says, that thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. Now that was a godly mother, the queen mother of Hezekiah. And Hephzibah is a Hebrew word that means my delight is in her. Now that's the way Israel will then be. Thou shalt be called Hephzibah. God's delight shall be in that name. And thy land shall be called Beulah, that is married. God will even marry the land. What a wonderful fact. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. He calls upon the nations to prepare for that great day. Go through, go through, he says the gate. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. And whenever you read in the Old Testament the people, it invariably means Israel. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation or thy Savior cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call him the holy people, the redeemed of Jehovah, Jesus. Thou shalt be called God of a city not forsaken. Now we had three witnesses. And... Let us briefly go to Jeremiah. I'm just scared to see that our time is almost up. Look at Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. There, he says, Behold, the days come, fifth verse, that will raise on, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign in trust. And he shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And his days when Christ shall reign as king of Israel and king of kings and lord of lords. And his days, not in his day merely, the day of his coming, but he'll show days here upon earth. And his days Judah shall be saved. And Israel dwells safely. 
And this is his name whereby he shall be called Jehovah Zidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Then Israel will glory in what we glory today, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. And Israel then will say, Jehovah Zidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness is but as a filthy rag before God. All our works, all our Talmudic works, and they throw them in the mud, and they say, Jehovah, that's our righteousness, Jehovah Jesus, just as we do today. And so we have then seen some have not even come up to Daniel or Ezekiel and Daniel. We shall next week, the Lord willing, give some more proof of Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets. For that is, after all, the fact that we must know. I hear there are three classes. Some say, of course, traditionally, there is no future for Israel. We are Israel. Others ask the question with doubt in their heart, is there a future for Israel? I had a letter from a lawyer. Yeah, not so long ago. And he told me our church does not believe in the restoration of Israel. But what is that in the Holy Land? Please tell me about it. I'm anxious to know. And so many asked, well, is there a restoration of Israel, yes or no? And so we want to know and show from the word of God that there's no dubiety doubt at all. We should know. And then there is a growing class, of course, that gladly takes what God has said in the whole book, that there is a wonderful restoration for Israel. But you might ask, what is the meaning of that? What does it mean for us? And why should we be so concerned in that? That question really comes out of the innate antisemitism of the human heart. Let's we shall later see in our chapter, the 11th chapter, the 15th verse, that Israel's restoration means life from the dead for the whole wide world. That's what the world needs.